Coming up, superior signals. We're discussing an antenna technology recognized as a top 100 innovation. Plus, a breakthrough in detecting chemicals with some help from machine learning. And ask us anything. We're tackling quantum entanglement. What exactly is it? Find out on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Benya. Breakthroughs and ask us anything ahead. But first, our guest is SWRI electrical engineer Brandon Nance from our SIGINT Solutions Department, here to talk about the AF369 direction finding antenna. This technology recently won a prestigious and highly competitive R&D 100 award, making it one of the top 100 innovations of 2019. Congratulations to your team and thank you for for being here, Brandon. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So let's start with a broad question first. What does the term SIGINT refer to? Yeah, SIGINT is short for signals intelligence. And signals intelligence is just the practice of passively, that means without transmitting anything back or actively communicating, just passively picking up electronic signals that are being transmitted across the air already. Okay, so I used the short name of the antenna, but it actually has a much longer name. So uh, the name is the AF369 VHF UHF DF antenna. So what do all those terms mean? Right, right. It's acronym SOUP. So uh, let's start at the end. Uh, and everybody knows what an antenna is. Uh, DF is short for direction finding, which is the practice of using an antenna array or some kind of sensor array to estimate the direction of arrival. So signals on the air, it's being broadcast. Uh, the direction finding antenna is there and it's able to estimate what direction of arrival, of arrival it came from. And, and that's practical because in SIGINT, you might want to know, you know, not just what somebody's saying when they transmit something, uh, you, you might want to know where they are. And so with a direction finding antenna or more than one direction finding antenna, you can actually figure that out. Um, so let's see, that's DF. Uh, VHF, UHF, those are different bands. It just means different frequency bands or different wavelengths. VHF is short for very high frequency. UHF is short for ultra high frequency. And put together, those cover 20 megahertz to, or 30 megahertz up to three gigahertz. So we're just saying that the antenna covers those entire, entire bands. So then we're on to the model number. AF369 is just the model number of the antenna. And so A and F just are sort of uh, Southwest Research Institute's just model nomenclature. A is for antenna, F is for fixed site, as opposed to a mobile or a shipboard application or an airborne application, it's a fixed site, which means it's on a mast somewhere and holding still. Uh, the numbers 369, uh, are between the range of values that we've internally decided describe stuff that covers VHF, UHF. And so uh, we had to pick an unused number and kind of an inside joke. We couldn't figure out what the top end frequency coverage was going to be. Was it going to be 3 gigahertz, 6 gigahertz, or 9 gigahertz? We were going to try to push it as far as we could get. We ended up with 3. And uh, we actually are working on a frequency extension design right now to take it all the way up to nine. All right. Random number there chosen. Yeah. That's neat. Also, if anybody's a fan of Lil John and the East Side Boys, you know, <laughs> shout out to Get Low. That's right. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm liking this antenna even more now. Awesome. So this is definitely a cool antenna. 
And, um, you know, we, we think about antennas helping us watch TV, for instance. Um, but what are some of the practical uses for antennas in general? Uh, yeah, I mean, antennas make it possible for us to communicate electronically uh, without wires, obviously. So, um, you know, all, all of the communication signals, um, you know, for emergency use, uh, police dispatch, cell phones, for God's sake, you know, Wi-Fi, all of the all of the stuff we depend on and just kind of take for granted these days, all made possible by antennas. So let's talk about this antenna in particular, um, and it is bolstering signal intelligence. How does it do that? Yeah, so it it allows not only uh, provides enough sensitivity to pick up signals in the first place, so that that signals across that huge span of bandwidth can be uh, monitored, uh, so that further processing and information can be pulled out later. It, like we said, it, it provides direction finding capability um, and uh, you know estimates direction of arrival of signals. So you know, not not just knowing what they're saying, but but maybe where they are. So how is the AF three sixty nine antenna used in the real world? Some real world applications. Yeah. So um, what our customers do with these specifically is kind of up to them, and we don't get in the middle of it uh, to be sure. But we envision. Uh, when we when we uh, created this thing, that that uh, you know there might be a, a range of scenarios. Well, so it's it's conceivable. You know, you might you might want to uh, listen to signals coming from uh, you know out over the water. You know, to protect a port of entry or something like that. You might for situational awareness, law enforcement activities. You might want to know uh, kind of what people are saying out there in case they're trying to do something against the law or something that might harm the United States. Uh, you know, if they transmit anything over the air that might give that away, uh, you know, these antennas can be used to help pick that up and give early warning to people for force protection, law enforcement reasons, and those kinds of things. And this isn't just local law enforcement. This can be used on a national security? Absolutely. Absolutely. Then let's talk about the design of this technology. What makes it stand out? How is it different from previous designs? Yeah, so... Um, Antennas that cover this frequency range are. This is not the first one to do that. We we have a long history of, of uh, providing antennas that cover VHF, UHF uh, frequency bands. A lot of them are shipboard designs. We do have some fixed site designs, kind of like this one, uh, at least in terms of the applications, kind of like this one in the past. They have all had to use um, every antenna that covers more than about uh, an octave of bandwidth, meaning the upper frequency limit. Uh, divided by the lower frequency limit is more than a factor of two. Um, they all have to use multiple antenna arrays. So within the, the total assembly, there there are multiple bands. You kind of have to break it up. No one set of antennas can do it all. So you have a different design covering different portions of the band uh, of interest. And this one kind of attempts to solve, you know, uses a new technique to solve an old problem, which is how can we cover all that stuff with as few antennas as possible to keep things cheap, to keep things simple in terms of the overall system complexity. Uh, so it uses um, some something we came up with on this project, sleeved dipoles to kind of help dipole antenna elements. It's just the, actually, it's the first kind of antenna ever invented, um, a dipole antenna. Uh, this puts a little sleeve around part of it to kind of mask off some of the current. And I'm sorry that's getting a little bit technical, but the, the point is, uh, the impact is, it keeps the antenna pattern focused toward horizon where we need to be picking up signals. Um, normal dipoles uh, have a, an upper frequency limit for a given length where that no longer happens, and the sleeve kind of corrects that and keeps things focused at horizon. So in the end, we can cover about an 80% bandwidth, 80% uh, more bandwidth, rather, 
than a conventional dipole. And that lets us completely eliminate one of what used to be three or four bands to cover this broad frequency range. So we can do it with two bands uh, instead of three. Why is bandwidth important? Yeah, so uh, just there's there's so much spectrum out there and it's all chock full of signals, you know, and there, there are more and more signals on the air every day and the spectrum's getting more and more crowded. And so what is happening is, um, you know, everything used to be all below 30 megahertz and then, you know, communications increased and increased and now it's up into VHF and UHF and we've uh, just all the time in order to get more um more bandwidth in terms of communications bandwidth, more information transmitted, things are going higher and higher in frequency. And so in order to effectively monitor all that spectrum for, for um, you know, national interest, national security, just keeping, keeping everyone safe, you have to listen to it all. And uh, so we have, to, we have to cover those bands. And going back to arrays, you said, you know, having less does save money. But right. um, what are the other advantages to having two instead of three? Yeah, it's just from an overall system design, um, it's more elegant. Um, so, you know, in addition to this antenna being up on a mast somewhere, there's a lot of electronics that, and, and computing equipment that goes, you know, downstairs that has to connect to it and talk to it. And fewer antennas make for fewer connection points. Uh, that means all the electronics downstairs can be even simpler and less complex, uh, but more importantly, um, less costly. How did it all begin? So, uh, interestingly enough, we kind of have these uh, strategic plans that we put together for for uh, upper management, and and uh, you know, kind of forces us to think instead of just reactively, you know, to what's this customer asking for that they want done next week or next year. Forces us to think a little bit down the road. We had identified um, the fact that you know our Scout uh, product line. That's that's a survey monitoring system that that our customers you know use for presumably uh, these kinds of applications. Uh, it's been doing really well. Uh, we have a VHF UHF version of it that's been covering these frequencies and was starting to garner interest. But a lot of people were asking for direction finding. What can you do for a direction finding antenna? The system itself, the stuff that goes downstairs, like I mentioned. Uh, fully capable of it, uh, but the only antennas we had to offer were either, well, let's just say they were over-designed for what our customers with these terrestrial fixed sites uh, needed. And so, you know, it was either a naval, uh, you know, shipboard application, and so uh, from shock and vibe, uh, vibration um, standpoint, the thing was heavily over-designed and very costly compared to what these folks needed uh, and compared to the cost of the rest of the system. Uh, had another terrestrial design that was, you know, made to just be transportable and go back together really quickly. And again, that's a lot of design, a lot of cost. Um, and so it just didn't, it didn't make sense to try to, you know, here's a system for X number of dollars. And then here's an antenna that goes with it for, you know, two or three X number of dollars. Uh, it just, we were never going to break into that market. Uh, so we kind of got together and realized we had this need, you know, what, and, and sat down and thought, what can we do? Uh, got together with uh, Mr. Downing, our our executive vice president, and uh, pitched an idea for this internal research project to him. And uh, luckily, lucky for us, he funded it. It worked out. So, where was there a moment where you really saw it coming together and really saw this technology uh, take flight the way you envisioned? Yeah, you know, there's probably a series of those, but one that stands out uh, is when. You know, so we didn't have this sleeved dipole uh, 
idea of, you know, lying around forever, uh, it kind of, we kind of lucked into it in a way. And, uh, I could tell the story about that in a minute, but once, once we built that and, and verified, you know, sure enough, this really does provide an 80% or more increase in bandwidth. It's this, and, and comparing the, uh, you know, the measured results and looking to see, you know, how sensitive is this thing going to be with this new dipole, uh, compared to what, competitors are offering uh and we saw an order of magnitude improvement and we realized this was this is pretty special yeah so tell uh, want to tell us that story yeah so um it's i i love collaboration i love working with other people because none of us it seems like ever come up with the best ideas on our own or in a vacuum and so you know case in point this this problem of covering so much bandwidth and trying to do it with fewer antennas again is an old problem and every time we start a new design project you know everyone's asking for all the reasons we've mentioned, how can you do this with fewer antennas? How can you do this with fewer antennas? And um, so we had, a, we had a new engineer, Thomas Christian, um, started in my section and uh, you know, he'd, he'd been around for maybe a year or so and um, was telling him about this problem. You know, what, what could we do to make dipoles uh, have higher bandwidth? Because you know, we know we need to use dipoles at the low end because we can't really make anything large enough um, well, there's, there are a lot of reasons, but we always use dipoles for the low band. So it's really just a matter of playing games, trying to come up with more bandwidth. And so he says, well, we could, we could play around with the feed. He'd seen some people at another place he worked, um, you know, feed the dipoles in more than one place, which is unusual. Normally you just feed it right in the center, uh, one place. And he says, well, I've seen her, you know, do this in multiple places. And, and I, I went away thinking, that's fascinating. I, I want to try this. So I, I, you know, did a quick electromagnetics model in a CAD program we got, simulates everything, fed it in two places. I ran a, an automatic optimization process on it, kind of repositioned the, the feeds in different places and looked for the optimum solution. And sure enough, I saw a bandwidth increase, but it was, you know, it was like 10% maybe, um, which I'll take it, but that, uh, that wasn't the full story. So I thought, well, sure, we'll, we'll do this. But I don't want to feed it in two places. That's complex. That's that's twice as many cables and going as I don't even know how to do that. So I thought, what if we can just feed? I'll feed it up, feed it once in the middle, and I'll just have this this sleeve around it that effectively where the sleeve opens, like each one of those will act like a feed point. And I did that, and I was astonished to see, you know, it wasn't eighty percent yet, but it was fifty percent, you know, increase in bandwidth. And I was like, what is this? Like, we're on, this is, this is different. This is not the way he envisioned when he described this to me, uh, this working. And uh, obviously I didn't expect it either. And so just kind of pulling at that thread and investigating why is this working? And, uh, you know, we realized we were really, really onto something. That was the big payoff yeah, moment. That's a big payoff moment. So, and, and serendipity, I wouldn't have come up with that on my own and he wouldn't have either. So it's kind of working together and learning things. That's, that's what makes the job fun. Right, so let's move on to the award, the R&D 100 Award. It's a huge honor, an annual award presented by R&D Magazine since 1963. It's become a prestigious recognition of innovative technology, really representing the very best of the year. SWRI has won 45 of these awards over the years. So how did you feel joining this group and winning the R&D Award for 2019? I think the best word to describe it is surreal. Like it just, um, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about it. I know that our our organization takes these very seriously and they're a big deal. We've got a huge wall in our admin building kind of showcasing all the awards and I'd walked by it a whole bunch of times and 
thought, wow, that's really neat. These these other people and these other divisions are are are, are doing really great things, and uh, that's that's really awesome. I never dreamed that uh, that we would get a shot at it because you know most of what we do is uh, you know maybe funded by a customer, and the customer you know doesn't necessarily want all the beans spilled, or or we want to hold on to this or that uh, for, for various reasons. And, uh, you know, but given that we developed this fully on IR, uh, you know, it gave us a, a, a real chance at, at kind of being a little more open about what, what's going on with this antenna and we can, we can market it a little more openly. And, and, uh, so when, uh, when my director suggested, I, I, uh, you know, write an application, I was kind of shocked. I was, we don't, we don't do this. What? No, this will never win. No, surely this will, but you know, took it seriously and had a lot of good help from our, our friendly communications, uh, department staff. And, uh, before I knew it, I was in San Francisco <laughs> wearing a tuxedo and, uh, seeing a whole bunch of other prestigious, uh, prestigious companies and organizations, national labs that, uh, you know, hear about sometimes run into on a regular basis and it was just fascinating and now you're seeing your own plaque with your own name yeah. your team up there yeah. i love it <laughs> pretty nice i love it and we just want to clarify you mentioned this was part of an ir program which is our internal research um, funding program so this technology um, was supported by swri internal research funds correct that's absolutely right all right and you you mentioned uh you mentioned the word team there and I, that's absolutely critical to point out because you know while I got to go wear the tuxedo and my director got to wear the tuxedo uh, by the way some folks were invited didn't want to wear a tuxedo but <laughs> point is we have a, a huge team and this wouldn't have been possible if if it were just me working on anything you know I just told a story where I, I couldn't have come up with that idea on my own you know we got huge team all of which working together was was really what what made all this possible and so just kind of accepting the award on their behalf and um yeah, it, it's it's an honor. Teamwork uh, makes the doing. dream work. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome recognition of that. So what do you enjoy about antenna technology? It So much of it is behind the scenes, but what's fascinating about it to you? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I kind of fell in love with, uh, with antenna design while I was in um, grad school. I, um, I'm not one of these, you know, you hear these stories of, of engineers, you know, um, you know, how did you get started in engineering? Well, I liked to take things apart and figure out how they work at an early age. And I always knew that I went, no, that wasn't me. I, um, I kind of backed my way into to things and, and, uh, uh, you know, electrical engineering, I, I liked the challenge. I liked, uh, a lot of aspects about it. I did want by, by the time I got to college, I was really starting to be fascinated about what makes things work and, and so forth. But I didn't really have an end goal of where, where, where I wanted to be with my career, but, I got a scholarship offered to me that was telecommunications related um, for for grad school, and uh, you know, kind of went around and interviewed different uh, professors and what what uh, I might work on. And one possibility was antennas. And the way the guy described it to me, uh, my my thesis advisor, um, was uh, you know, it's it's it sounded like the perfect mix of art and science. And I got an artistic background, a um, little bit of little bit of music, a uh, little bit of, you know, actual artwork, um, nothing professional by any means. But anyway, I just loved that. How is antenna work artistic? Yeah, I think, I think it's the, some of the 3D CAD aspects is what I'm thinking of, you know, so, and, and, and also in the sense that it's, uh, 
it's uh you know art or science you know people talk about it's i've got it down to a science or it's an art uh you know the way the way you do this there's a lot of people call it black magic radio frequency stuff and antenna so they call it black magic there's a little bit of truth to that because there are a few people out there that really understand it all you know completely a lot of us have to do a weird mix of you know uh having some theory and fundamentals under our background and just try the rest out in a in a model or a, an experiment all right, so you told us one story already, but do you have any other favorite moments designing this technology or working with antennas? I really enjoyed um, just kind of working with uh, Don Mahoney from from our applied physics uh, division. He's a former uh, uh, former. Well, my division's now called Defense and Intelligence Solutions. It used to be called um, a few other names, and he he worked he worked in our. Uh, our division back when it was named some other things. And um, anyway, so he had, he had designed a lot of our antennas that had come before, uh, especially direction finding antennas. And so he, he's just kind of the expert on campus when it comes to those things and getting together and collaborating with him, you know, uh, my, my group coming up with some of the electrical and radio frequency designs and ele- from an electrical standpoint, not necessarily a mechanical one, what, what does the antenna have to look like and you know to do what it's supposed to do and then getting with him to figure out how can we meet those constraints and still build this thing and make it simple and cost effective that that was fascinating to watch him work he came up with some really uh amazing concepts that uh you know manufacturing techniques that uh that i i hadn't seen before and um yeah i really enjoyed that the the final product is just it's very elegant um it's it's simple to manufacture. Uh, it's easy to put together. Uh, it's easy to test, and 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 yeah, just just getting to kind of see all that happen, uh, watching him work was was another highlight. So your very own antenna mentor. Absolutely. All right. Well, I don't think antennas get enough attention, and so thank you for shedding light on this area of technology. They really are key for some advanced and important applications, so it's interesting to learn about them and get your insight today. So thanks for joining us, Brandon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So nice to have you here. So SWRI picked up two R&D 100 awards in 2019. Next month, we'll highlight our second award-winning technology, the Super Hydrophobic Lotus Flow Coating Process. And now, breakthroughs, personal stories of discovery told by the people who lived them. Today, a scientist drowning in data turns to artificial intelligence. Hi, I'm Kristen Favella, Principal Scientist at Southwest Research Institute. And I'm Michael Hartnett, and I'm a Computer Scientist at Southwest Research Institute. So I'm a mass spectrometrist by training. So I know that's a very technical sounding term, but basically a mass spectrometer is just a big fancy instrument that identifies chemicals. And over the past 10 years, the instruments have gotten much, much better. The mass spectrometers have gotten much more able to identify many, many, many chemicals in um, all kinds of different samples. So We've looked at soils, we've looked at um, consumer uh, care products such as lotions and lipsticks, building materials, um, all kinds of products that you touch, breathe, ingest every day. We're looking at all this data because we have very little understanding of what is in all of these things, these products that we come into contact with every day. And 
we're, we're getting a wealth of information from these instruments, but almost too much. So I spent many, many days just sorting through thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals, reviewing every um, signal coming off of the instrument manually. And it got to be too much. I would get, you know, uh, headaches and <laughs> pains in my neck from sitting at the computer and, and looking at all this data. What we really needed was an artificial intelligence solution that would allow us to look at the data directly and still keep the expert chemist uh, to make the difficult decisions, but use a computer to do the, the back-breaking, tedious work for us. So we, we, have, we have a fabulous machine learning division here at Southwest Research Institute, and that's how I met Michael and his team. Yeah, so um, it was really exciting to get involved with Kristen uh, and her team over in uh, the chemistry world. And so um, basically machine learning is best for exactly the type of application that Kristen's talking about, um, where you have a wealth of uh, data, but you have to sift through it in a manual process. Um, so we, we leveraged machine learning um, in, in this instance to produce a signal quality score um, over those you know, hundreds or thousands of signals in a sample uh, that Kristen had to deal with manually before. And we're looking at similar information uh, to what Kristen was already kind of doing in her head. And we're basically trying to uh, you know, simulate an analytical chemist using artificial intelligence. Um, so of course we can't do all of her job because um, she's trained and she's very intelligent and it's hard to do that with machine learning. Um, but we are able to do the more tedious uh, uh, mundane work. Um, so we've, we've uh, produced a system now that can perform that manual review process um, with a pretty good accuracy. We're not identifying compounds, but what we are doing is weeding out the or filtering out the, the bad signals. So things that aren't actually in there, they're just artifacts of the, of the instrument itself. It feels great because this is not just a problem that we're having. This is a problem that every group that relies on mass spectrometry uh, to do their research is having. Everybody that does, as we call it, non-targeted analysis or trying to find all the chemicals in a particular sample, everybody is having this problem. So this is going to really push a lot of different scientific fields forward, not just environmental chemistry. Yeah, I, I agree with Kristen that this is a lot of different fields could could use this technology, and it feels really good to have that large of an impact. Um, I think it'll sort of promote uh, health in not just environmental, but also food and agriculture, um, the forensics. It'll improve safety overall for the population. I think that's Really, it's a cool feeling to contribute to that. And the machine learning tool they created together is now known as Floodlight. Thanks for sharing your breakthrough story, Kristen and Michael. 
And now, ask us anything you ask our experts answer. Andrew A. asked on Instagram, how does quantum entanglement work? Our expert SWRI scientist, Dr. Jerome Helfrick, has the answer. Thanks for joining us, Jerome. So what is quantum entanglement and how does it work? Um, Quantum entanglement implies that there are two or more particles that have some kind of uh, shared properties in a quantum state so that a measurement or um, an observation that you do on one of them reveals features about the other members of the entangled set. Um, Well, it works by preparing the particles carefully. Um, They have to be isolated from the outside world so that no uh, other collisions with other particles can uh, disturb their entanglement. Um, This usually involves cooling them to very low temperatures, They can be put into um, a quantum computer to make computations that are difficult for ordinary computers to make. Uh, Or we can make experiments on them which indicate that you can get action at a distance. If you measure the properties of a particle here next to you, it actually affects the properties of a particle miles away. There are uh, some advanced computing uh, facilities that are trying to use this. Uh, IBM has several quantum computers. Uh, Google reportedly has one or two. Um, There are other maybe 10 quantum computers around the world now that have done primitive computations, but the field is really just in its infancy. There, there was a, a famous paper published by Albert Einstein in 1935 that indicated that quantum mechanics allows for this so-called action at a distance where a measurement on one particle of an entangled pair would allow you to infer the properties of another one that you had never seen before that could be light years away. And this seems to violate our notions of causality and that, you know, um, things that we can measure here must take some finite time to affect other objects. This uh, idea of entanglement implies that you can do massively parallel computations so that you can perform computations that would be impossible for an ordinary computer. And it also allows for the possibility of detecting disturbance of uh, publicly distributed cryptography keys. In other words, if somebody makes an observation on your key and uh, without you knowing it, you can make a test of it and the person who was supposed to receive the key would know that it had been um, tampered with. And so it it allows for more secured um, delivery of cryptography codes. It's fun to read about. You can read the original paper published in 1935. It's very readable by Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen. And uh, there are numerous um, recent papers or uh, articles on it. One was in the New York Times not long ago. Want to know more? Dr. Helfrick recommends the book Quantum by Manjit Kumar. To submit your question, use hashtag AskSWRI, comment on one of our Ask Us Anything posts, or visit podcast.swri.org and scroll to the bottom. Your question may be featured on an upcoming podcast episode. 
And that wraps up this episode of Technology Today. Subscribe to the Technology Today podcast to hear in-depth conversations with the people changing our world and beyond through science, engineering, research, and technology. Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host, Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening.